Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. I think if you listen to the program, you know that I try to play music that will relax my guest. And uh, so when you come from Kentucky, right, normally you listen to country and western music. Uh, Joining me, a native of the bluegrass state himself, uh, a guy I met about a month ago, Matthew Bradford. So, are you a Toby Keith guy? You're probably a rock and roll guy or a headbanger guy now, aren't you? Now that I've said this, I actually like Toby Keith, and it's it's funny. In 2011, I met him in Iraq and um, gone to a bunch of shows and been invited on stage. And on that concert in 2011, when he played at Virginia Beach, he actually let the world know that my wife was pregnant. We were expecting, and we didn't tell anybody. So that was a <laughs> Everybody, they found out after the video, that's for sure. Wow. How about that? Little McNamara being clairvoyant. That's sweet. <laughs> the um, Toby Keith. There you go. Um, so, first of all, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, um, let's talk about you, okay? So, you're born and raised where? I was actually born in, in Petersburg, Virginia. Um, parents got divorced when I was an early age, and then I moved to Kentucky because both my mom and my dad's family live here. And I was raised here until right through my freshman year in high school, and then I moved back to Virginia. So kind of flip-flopped between these two states. Got it. Got it. And what were in Kentucky? Did you? Did you I live in Winchester, basically right outside of Lexington, kind of central Kentucky. Got it. So if you go, if you don't know where Lexington is, if you go generally south from Cincinnati, and uh, you will run right into Lexington. And uh, as uh, as Matthew said, in, in the central part of the state, how does the uh, how does the Marine Corps uh, get on your radar as a kid? I never really. Um, I think pretty much after nine eleven, I didn't really have much of a. I just like which military branch I wanted to join. I just wanted to join. Right. Um, I looked at in the army. I looked at in the air force because my dad was in the air force. And then I had a couple of classmates that went straight into uh, Marine Corps recruit training right after graduating. And they're the ones that kind of introduced me to the Marine Corps recruiter. And then uh, him and I, we played sports together. We played basketball. And then he took me to Hooters and he sold me on the idea <laughs> of being a Marine. And cause at that time I just wanted to go overseas. I wanted to fight. And I, I knew, Marine Corps infantry would get me over there right in the middle of this, you know, the war that was going on. So are you, so you're one of, uh, you, you're a kid who grows up watching the aftermath of September, yeah, was, of September 11th. Yes. Yeah, I, was in, I was in ninth grade and when nine eleven happened and then, um, you know, once I moved to Virginia, where my dad lived, he worked on Fort Lee, and, uh-huh. and that's where actually I went through Meps was Fort Lee. So it's like you go to the mall on the weekend, or, or I'd go to work with him, like, like constantly seeing you know the military uniform, the you know the soldiers you know in the mall or on post, and, and you know at that time in two thousand one, two, three, it was like 
you had the the yellow ribbon magnets to support the troops magnets the unity and the you know the american flags flying all over the place and you know and you know i just realized after 9-11 you know watching the towers come you know come down the terrorist attacks like military is what i wanted to do so <clears throat> you're rolling around you get taken to hooters and recruited by the marine corps um the um so ultimately why i mean your dad's an air force dude you he's working on an army installation and yet the marine corps uh appeals to you um in retrospect why at that time because i knew they would i'd get right overseas because you know when i looked in the air force i did look more into like the special forces units but their training was so long and i didn't want to wait around and you know at that time i didn't want to miss the war i wanted to go right over and um, you, you know, now looking back with what happened to me and and where the Marine Corps, you know, it plays such an important role in my life today. And um, like, I'm glad I made that decision 16, 17 years ago now. And when you say made such an important, played such an important role in your life, what do you mean by that? They, you know, I've been out of the Marine Corps for eight years now and they still contact me to see how I'm doing. Um, you know, when I got injured, the Marines were in my hospital room every day. You know, they were checking in on me from the time I left Bethesda to when I was in the VA in Richmond, Virginia, you know, where at that time the, the Marine Corps didn't really have a wounded warrior battalion or regiment or it was just jump starting. Right. Right. Um, but the Marines found time, they would come see me and they would take care of not only me, but my family. And, you know, everything that I've learned from staying on those yellow footprints to all the leadership advice from others. Um, I mean, that's what helped keep me alive when I was injured. You know, the, the wounded war battalions were models for the other services um, in terms of how to do this right. Um, because, you know, we really hadn't done this on any scale since Vietnam. And uh, the world has changed much since Vietnam, uh, you know, with, you know, how we're all joined electronically and, and yet a lot of the problems that, you know, we face uh, coming home, you, you know, wounded um, uh, are the same. And so uh, the wounded war regiments uh, and battalions that stood up on the coast and then the regiment in Quantico um, really kind of were groundbreaking things in terms of this org- these organizations that were totally committed to the care of uh of wounded marines and and their families and uh really did some pioneering work and i you know great stuff not only for the marine corps but you know to the other services of 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 this is how you do it these are the things you have to deal with and uh and uh really some you know great stories that that come out of those battalions and those regiments and and you're obviously kind of on the cutting edge of that it's interesting Interesting, and I I want to come back to that, Matthew. But so <clears throat> you joined the Marine Corps in in what year is that? Two thousand six, two thousand five, two thousand five. All right. So um, you go to Paris Island. You leave Paris Island. Did you know you wanted to be a, a grunt? What did you did you go open contract? How did you, how, how do you actually join the Marine Corps? Uh, I went straight in infantry, um, and it's funny we're not right after I. Uh, because I did the delayed entry program. I was 18 going into my senior year in high school, so I didn't need any kind of parent signature. And uh, when I come home from, from MEPS that day, my dad looked at me and he's like, do you know what infantry does? And, and 
like I did, you know, and, and I believe, uh, you know, half our platoon and boot camp went infantry as well. And, you know, once we left, the, left there, I mean, we were all in the school of infantry together. We were basically all signed to the same unit in Hawaii together. Um, so a lot of these guys, and, and, you know, from day one, when we got there, we knew that like, with being an infantry, being a grunt, we were headed overseas. And so, but we had a lot of familiar faces that was, you know, going through the Marine Corps with us. So, and you, you all get sent to Hawaii. Now, I remember I was in Fallujah in 2006, and I want to say either 1-3 or 2-3 um, deployed there, but, and that was the first time a unit from what historically was known as 1st Marine Brigade in Hawaii uh, deployed to Iraq, and they were, I can't tell you how fired up they were, they were there to be there, <laughs> right? I mean, because it's like they were not participating you know they were going to okinawa and they like a lot of units that didn't get to the war in 2000 you know 2003 2004 and five mm-hmm. i mean they were i mean they were pissed man because they want they joined the marine corps they want to fight and uh okay. and so uh talk to us about first of all uh born and raised in kentucky virginia and then out to hawaii what was that like well, you know, the one thing in the Marine Corps, it's like if you're an East Coast Marine, you're more than likely going to be stationed on the East Coast. And the funny thing is, like, our senior drill instructor told us a couple of weeks before we, you know, at that time, once you did the crucible, you only had a couple of weeks of classes and then graduation. And he was like, once I'm done with you all, I got, you know, one more cycle left and my ass is headed to Hawaii and you're never going to see me again. And you kind of like, oh, awesome. Well, we're going to be on the East Coast anyway, so we're never going to see him again. And, <laughs> you know, we kind of forget about that until we check into Hawaii. And we find out that he's, you know, in Hawaii. And uh, he's actually was a platoon sergeant in the same company. And uh, but it was, you know, being That's a funny. Kentucky, Virginia boy, I didn't want to be stationed in Lejeune, even though I knew it probably happened. Like the little check in the box, quote, a bucket list. You know, I put Okinawa and Camp Pendleton as my first two choices, and they pretty much stuck me right in the middle. But um, <laughs> I always tell people, it's like, you know, free trip to Hawaii by the government. I mean, just look at a flight and hotels today, you know. It's, but um, it was an experience, that's for sure. And, you know, just a bunch of uh, bunch of country kids headed to Hawaii. Talk to us about, uh, you know, you know, you're go- you know you're going. Talk to us about the training before you went. Uh, what do you remember most about it? What was most significant about it to you? I know when, when we first got to Hawaii, two, three just got back from Afghanistan, and we went right into a workup. Um, you know, very blessed with the the seniors that I had, um, excellent leaders. You know, we were. You know, the first training ex- training exercise that we did was on the Big Island, and and I think that training exercise, which lasted about a week. And, um, up on a volcano and I think you kind of start to earn trust from your seniors and your leaders knowing that okay you're, you can hike you, you could you could clear a room you could do all the stuff that asked for you to do and um, you know they're not going to sit there and hold your hand through it but you know it was just busy 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 because it was we were already in a workup then um, you know but it was uh, I think it was just like you know we had our just the the time that we spent together, you know, and, and they always told us when we first got there that like, you could be deployed at any time. Like we could get a call tomorrow and we're going overseas. So it's like, you got to make sure to stay ready, you know, and, and the importance of training. It's like everything that you do in training is going to get carried over to, you know, action, real action overseas. And, you know, so it's learned to take this up serious, even though we were you know, 18, 19 year old kids in Hawaii, you know, yeah, we did enjoy the beach and Waikiki, but 
you know, when it was time to turn it on, we turned it on and we were ready to train. You know, that's interesting because, um, you know, you, you, you see this discussion, you know, about, you know, training's bullshit and, and, you know, and then, you know, people get serious when you go to war and then you, you know, you talk to people, you know, whether, I don't care if it's Vietnam guys or whatever war they fought in and they say, no, 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 you know, nobody fairy dust you on the flight over. You know, it starts in the way you train. It starts in 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 the way you the li- way you live and work together in garrison. It it carries to the field and the way you work there, and that's what you are when when you go. You there is no there is no magic dust that comes out of the air vents on the airplane that takes a <laughs> takes a a poorly trained you know unit that doesn't work well together and turns them into good just because you change the environment. And so it's 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 uh it's interesting. Uh it's interesting and, and you say in, that. Yeah. yeah. Back in September I was speaking to six Marines about resiliency and a lot of I realized then that, you know, when I was going through recruit training at SOI that I was the, the young Marine and you know, you had these old veterans come and speak and now here I am the old veteran speaking to these young Marines because you know, six Marines a very historic unit in the Marine right. Corps. Yeah. None of these guys never deployed before. And when I was speaking to them just three weeks before was the uh, training accident in Camp Pendleton where the Marines and the sailor, the corpsmen were killed. Right. And and I brought that up that, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's training or not. Like you could still get hurt or die in training. You know, that's why you still got to go a hundred percent as they, you know, they always told us when we played, you know, high school football, that if, if you're not going a hundred percent, you're more high risk of getting hurt. And it's just, you just gotta, you gotta go at all times, you know, and you got to understand that, you know, why you're doing this stuff. And, you know, I never realized it until you're in that firefight, like, okay, the whole chaotic chaos and recruit training, what's the point of all this? You know, what's the point of being in a routine or being organized? And then, like, you know, when you're in a firefight, you understand this because, you know, people always talk about, you know, it must go by so fast or, you know, all this stuff happening at once, but it truly slows down. And then you start, like, observing, like, like, what do I need to do first? What do I need to do second? And, you know, and, and all of this is within, like, a couple of seconds. But it just, you know, okay, now all this stuff in boot camp makes sense. And, and you know, of course, the, the routine and organization makes sense, in, you know, a little later in life, too. Interesting. So you guys leave. Um, you did you When did you learn where you were going in Iraq before you left? I think right before we, once we got back from pre-deployment leave, which was like mid-August, and we were heading out around the 1st of September, I think that's when we started kind of figuring out where we were headed. Um, we, we definitely knew we were going to Iraq, and um, we were started getting reports from 3-3 as we were, were leaving them, and they were starting to um, send guys home as well, send Marines home. And you know, once we got over to Kuwait and Al-Assad, this is when we realized that like what we're getting involved in, where we're going is pretty dangerous because some of the Marines that we ran into with 3-3 was, was honestly telling us they felt bad for the situation we're getting ready to get involved with. That battalion lost 14 Marines on their deployment. And, you know, at that time, Fallujah's already been, was over. Uh, Ramadi, you know, Ditha was kind of that that last little Al-Qaeda stronghold in 06. You know, they were trying to keep the dam. So, you know, insurgents didn't take that over. And, you know, so it's like we had to go in there and, you know, make a difference and let them know that, that we're here to protect the, the citizens of the city. And, I mean, 
you didn't have to do a whole lot of poking around to read about, you know, the casualties that have been suffered, you know, in the Hadithia area, right? 325 before 33, you know, I mean, had the highest casualty rate of uh, of a unit. That was in 2005. 33 uh, follows them up there. And they, they, I mean, they take casualties. So, um sobering right you you haditha had been in the news right when and now you're headed there what what are your first recollections of of uh of, of moving into the city and and what that was like for you guys as we, we were flying from al-assad into the haditha dam and it was in the middle of the night and you know you start hearing the stories of like the mobile unit having to fight their way onto the fob because the fob was located in the middle of town and, and like you know the the, the the dam was so huge like it's was, it was pretty amazing to look at something, you know, in a country with you know, war torn, these buildings destroyed, and you see this massive dam. And like you stand on top of it, and you look over the city of Haditha, and you just see like this little town's a bunch of lights on, and you know, you didn't realize that'd be like a hornet's nest that you're going to get involved in. And it, it was, um, it was something, you know. It's you realize then that like this isn't a video game. Like, you know, they're not shooting blank rounds at you they're trying to kill you and your buddies and you know there's no pause or restart and you know within the first 40 days on average we had one casualty per day in our company and you see the mobile unit get hit hard over and over again losing marines either wounded or um killed unfortunately and then and it was just the in the briefing room they had a, a chart or you know like a table and it had each marine that was wounded and where he is and you know every day you'd go into and get briefed for a patrol and you just look up and see like what's next or who who's gone now and but you you really enjoy those times you spend with each other and you love those opportunities because you know at that time when we left the fog we didn't know who was coming back alive or who was coming back you know fully fully with all their limbs right and just so everybody knows um you know the the Euphrates River, you know, um, heads you know it, it it heads west, a little bit south of Baghdad, and then it goes through Fallujah, it goes through Ramadi, and then it continues to head west towards the Syrian border, and Haditha they built a dam, right, and so behind the Haditha dam is obviously uh, a huge lake, and uh, and then the river continues you know out towards. Uh, uh, Al Qaim, and actually just in the news for some some drone strikes that were done in the a uh, you know in the uh, Husayb Al Qaim area, and then on the Syrian side of the border. But that's what uh, that's what Matthew's talking about, where he went to work. Talk about um, talk about your initial experiences uh, in combat. What, what were they like? Uh, you talked about you know learning how to slow things down, um, and but you know all this training you know, into the country, you know, looking around, and now all of a sudden it's happening to you. What was that like? It was, uh, you know, I think going over there, like I had my family, but I wasn't married or I had kids. Like I was fully committed to going over there and understanding the risk that, some, you know, that, that I might not come home alive. And and I think it kind of helped me ease, like being deployed and being over there, knowing that I'm, I'm either going to come home with my brothers or I'm not going to come home at all. Like I didn't have to – like I, I went to Afghanistan in 2017, and it was so tough because you know, I had a wife and kids. Like I, I couldn't imagine being you know, in a firefight with that on my mind. 
but I remember the first firefight we got into and it's not really comparable, but almost, you know, that when you play football and the first time you get hit, you're like, okay, now, now that's what it feels like. So I'm good with it. But we were um, kind of walking in the Palm Grove area down towards the Euphrates river along a compound wall. And, and the, they opened up on our left side and me and my team leader jumped behind a tree that was probably the size of a, a softball in diameter. And <laughs> he's like, Hey, Bradford, go get behind that tree. And that tree was probably the size of a baseball. And I'm like, you lost your mind. Like, you know, but it's uh, like we, we, you know, we engaged the enemy and the, our corpsman had a, like a, a shotgun to breach doors and he fired that thing off. And, and of course they stopped shooting at us once they heard that big boom from a shotgun. But, you know, after that, it was just, you know, you kind of like, you get, you get your boots dirty, you know, you get, you get and uh, you get comfortable with, you know, engagements and stuff. So. You know, and every time we went on patrol, we went down certain areas, Market Street, Boardwalk, Palm Groves. You kind of automatically just put your your rifle on fire because you know you're going to get some kind of action. And one of the patrols we went on, I I was joking around and my squad leader's right in front of me. And I'm like, I just want, I'm ready. You know, it's been a couple of days that I think since we last had a firefight and like I'm ready to get some today. And and, and he didn't, he just heard me. And then we go out and we get into like a, two-hour firefight another firefight and as we're walking back into the fob he's like brass i'm gonna kill you <laughs> what did i do <laughs> but is uh but you know we our squad took um i mean we took so many engagements when we were over there but you know we we left with 12 marines and we come back with 12 marines and um i think we just uh you got you got used to you got comfortable of doing what we need to do and um, we let the enemy know that they're going to give us what they got, and we're going to give them a lot more in return. Talk to us about um, about about getting wounded. What happened that day? So on on foot patrol, which we we walked a majority of the time, I actually felt safer on foot than I did in the vehicle. Right. But you know, we got a, a briefing to go out for another IED patrol down towards the Euphrates River, a road that lay parallel called Park Place, and you know. The way a lot of insurgents mark weapons cache or um, like IED emplacements is they'll use like an indicator that, you know, to kind of let them know where it is as well. And and we're walking down this road along a compound wall, and there's an opening into an area called the palm groves with a bunch of palm trees. And I see a white bag leaned up against a tree about 30 yards off to my right. And I'm like, well, that's suspicious. So I try and tell my team leader to my left and the guys behind me about this white bag, like keep your eyes out. And the minute I turned around and I looked down, there was a ditch that laid perpendicular from the road I was standing on. And inside that ditch was the command wires going inside the pipe underneath the road. And yeah, literally like centimeters below me that close. And it exploded directly underneath me. It was a um, controlled death. So somebody was looking out the window and pushed the button and uh, it sent shrapnel to both my eyes as I looked down and um, my left eye was Shrapnel actually went to penetrate through my left eye and uh, lodged in my brain. My left leg was removed from the blast, and my right leg was facing a different direction. And, um, you know, I remember laying there. I was still conscious in and out and just hearing the Marines running around me, squad leader calling in for QRF, you know, to get me out of there. And, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, all the firefights that we got into, we, you know, we found a way to get out of them alive. And this is the first time that we dealt with any, you know, casualties. And, you know, as the um, the Marines, they put me in a compound. You know, they got me in a litter kit and put me in a compound. And 
honestly just held my hand because they didn't think I'd make it. Like, you know, talking to my, you know, my corpsman who was in Montana last month that you met, you know, none of them thought I would make it out of that. And, you know, when, when QRF pulled up, they put me in the back of the high back and then took me to the to medevac, the Blackhawk. And it's interesting when I mentioned my senior drill instructor earlier, how he's in the same company. He was the platoon sergeant of QRF. And the last words I heard before I passed out was, you'll be fine, Bradford. And um, his voice, so that, uh, that voice, though, that voice, that, yeah. that voice, right. Telling you, you don't forget that voice either. Uh, <laughs> even, hey, even when you're wounded and you got shrapnel in your brain and you got one, you got part of one leg gone, the other one's facing the wrong way. Even in that condition, that voice is still that voice. <laughs> it, it was, you know, and it was, it, it it's still today, um, fourteen years later, echoes in my head, and I, I use it a lot as as you know motivation, as you know for discipline and. Because I know at the end of the day everything's gonna be fine, no matter what what it is, or what the struggle is, or what the what what the day entails. Everything's gonna be okay. That's you know what that's crazy. Um, that voice, you know, in that condition, as you said, you know, shrapnel penetrates your eye, is in your brain, right, <laughs> and you yeah. still know that voice and and those and those words. So you get lifted out of there. On a medevac. Now, how many months into the deployment was that? It was about four and a half, five months. Like we were actually, um, I mean, they were. Like I actually called my uncle right before we went on that patrol, and I was just telling him, "I'm like, man, we're about, we're about ready to head home." I was excited, you know, because at right. that time, the deployment was starting to like the work that we were doing. Like they, the surgeons stopped shooting at us. You know, you had your 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 ID here and there, but. We weren't getting action like we were, you know, a month earlier or two months earlier. So it was, it was, you know, like we, we shut down traffic within the streets and then we were out actually doing a lot of, um, like census stuff, you know, tracking them in the computer, doing their fingerprints. And so like we were moving in the right direction and, and I always, you know, we lost 23 Marines on our deployment as a battalion and 177 were wounded, but when one three relieved us, they didn't receive any casualties. So it's uh, you know, there's a lot of blood shed in Haditha, but you know we we did our job and you know we we're moving it in the right direction. Got it. So you get medevaced, and you know the normal path of that is Al Assad, and then you know a lot of times Balad, and then Germany. What, what how how did you flow to? I assume Germany first, yes. I went through. Uh, they like they took me to our FOB, um, BAS there. It's like you know, kind of clean me up a little bit and do what they needed. And then I went to Balad, and then on to Germany. I was injured probably around I think it was around 4:30 on the 18th of January, and I was in Bethesda by the 21st around night, you know, around 7 8 p.m. So they uh, they didn't know how my the eye pressure the you know the flying how that would all work right. so they tried to get me over as, as soon as possible and once i got through to bethesda i was in a coma for about three weeks now were you in and out uh i mean if for those of you who've never seen this i mean this process if you see the what the c-17s that are that are essentially hospitals in the air um if you see the machinery that they have on them if you see the way the litters are there you see the doctors and nurses that fly on these things I mean, it, uh, amazing. And so 
literally as soon as you can get, you know, uh, somebody wounded like Matthew was, you know, um, everybody, I mean, we had done this now since 2003 in Iraq specifically. Um, um, it, it was, it's, it was amazing to watch. I mean, how good, you know, the American military got at taking care of people that are critically wounded and, um, and, and being able to, to get them stable enough to move so that they could, their injuries could be treated, you know, with the highest level of technology that we could get. And normally that was a Bethesda or Walter Reed. Were you conscious or unconscious during the, I was unconscious. The... I was, yeah, I was out of it. And, and that's the one thing I want to talk to. Like when I mentioned those last words from, from, from then Cesar and Clark, he's a master of guns now, but that was the last words I heard. And then I just passed out. Like I, I, I somewhat remember when I was in the, in the black Hawk, the helicopter, the um like beeps and then like talking to me, but I don't remember it well enough to even, even talk about it. Um, that's kind of, but yeah, I didn't wake up until three weeks later. Wow. Wow. So you wake up, you wake up in the Bethesda, you look around, who's there, and like, what the fuck, over? Like, you look around and like, what happened? So describe that, right? I mean, it was, it was at first, when I first, because the phantom pains in my legs were so strong that like, I still felt like I had feet. And um, you know, I, I hear my dad, he was in the hospital room. And okay, hold on, hold on. I, I want you to, you know, for the people who've never heard of phantom pain, could you explain what that is? But your nerves still work. So, you know, and then after an amputation, it's like you could still, like it is so strong that you could still feel like you have your feet. And like, just like sitting here right now, I could like, if I was acting like I was moving my toes, like my nerves would flare up right now. And you know, when I first got hurt, the, the phantom pains, the nerves were still trying to send, you know, send the nerve, you know, send it to my feet. And um, but it was so strong. And my dad was like standing over my shoulder and he would whisper to the doctor. And and all of a sudden at that time, I didn't know I lost legs or lost my vision. Right. I'm sitting there thinking, man, somebody kidnapped me. They blindfolded <laughs> me right now because I'm going to get my head cut off, you know, and it's because uh, just – to me, it felt like, okay, just a, a day ago, I was in Iraq with my, my friends, my brothers. Now here I am, my dad in, in the hospital, you know, the, my dad's standing over my shoulder. I'm going, what's going on? Or these people are whispering behind my back. And I had to, um, I had to let my dad know that like, you can't do that. <laughs> but <laughs> So but wait, I, wait a minute. So you wake up and you get pissed at your dad? I, did, I, I was, I got mad at everybody. Like at that time, like I was, uh, cause all of this stuff, like, you know, started getting like, like it's just so much stuff for me at that time. And, you know, I was just mad at everybody because uh, again, I, I, I wanted to either come home with my brothers or not come home at all. Like right. I didn't want this in the middle, live a life with no legs or no vision, you know? And when my dad told me I lost my legs and my vision, like it devastated me. I didn't care about losing my vision. It was my legs. I wanted to grow back. Um, like I, I, here I am, I'm 20 years old. I'm not even, you know, I'm not even old enough to legally drink in this country. And like, I'm sitting there thinking like, how in the world am I going to live life with no legs and no vision? And, and, you know, so I wouldn't eat. I was so skinny. Um, like the medical, the hospital medical band would go all the way up to my armpit. Um, you know, lifting my head up off the hospital bed was, it was tough. It was very hard to do. And people would come in my hospital room and I would yell at them. I'd cuss at them. And, 
I, I just didn't want to live. I figured if the ID is not going to kill me, then I'll find a way to kill myself. The um, one of the things that happens at Bethesda is there's other Marines there that are further along in the process than you are. Um, normally they descend on you as soon as you get there and say, yeah, you got to go with us. Um, talk to us about that. You begin to meet guys that are in some form of condition the same as you. Um, what was that like? Well, two of the Marines that were um, in Bethesda were actually in the same company I was in. They were wounded just a couple of months before I was. One was shot in the head, and the second one was Marcus, the gentleman you met in, in Montana. Yeah. And um, once they found out that I was in a hospital room, they were in my room every chance they possibly could. Marcus, he's the one that, that – he snuck in Red Lobster cheddar biscuits for me <laughs> when I was trying to eat. Yeah. But, uh, Nate, the, nothing says I love you and give a shit like sneaking in Red Lobster cheddar biscuits, yep. right? Yep. There you and go, man. Bethesda. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, – you know, him, him losing a leg, having a prosthetic, learning how to walk at that time. Like He, he was in this for three months already, so he – kind of helped me pave the road like you know because at my 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 head i'm like i don't know what's next like you know who's gonna take care of me where am i where am i gonna go and he told me that this journey is gonna be tough you know but you're gonna want to quit and give up sometimes but you just gotta keep moving forward you know because there is light at the end of the tunnel and you know and you just gotta understand that to get anything like you just have to work hard like you know and that's what really kind of you know talking about the marine corps earlier like this is when I realized, and I think why the corpsmen and the nurses were so hard on me is because they never let me think twice that I wasn't a Marine anymore. Like the whole, you know, adapt and overcome, lead by example, never quit. Like Marines aren't going to want to quit. And I know those guys that were fighting in Iraq wouldn't want me to sit over here and give up. And and it, it put my mind in the right spot because I realized that. And all these Marines and, and sailors and soldiers, whoever comes in my hospital room that's helping me out, like this is what I want to do. Like – I want to be that person that walks into someone's room who's struggling, who's having a bad day, and tell them that you can get you can get through anything. You know, God don't pave us perfect paths for this life. Like He pays a mountain in front of us, a boulder in front of us. He makes it tough because He wants to test to see how strong we are. And and I realized that opportunity for me was outside those hospital doors. And to get there, I needed to learn how to first get out of this bed. I need to figure out this prosthetics, and then once I figure those prosthetics out, then I'm going to figure out the vision loss. And how, how long? How long did that take? Because what you're talking about, I mean, again, you're you're 20 years old, as you as you just said. You know, I've lost my vision. Um, uh, and again, had you lost all your vision? I lost all of it. My my left eye was nucleated, so it's a prosthetic eye, and then my right eye, my my right eye, I, I did my last surgery first uh, of March to see if I could get any kind of vision back and it didn't work. Um, but you know, like I was in Bethesda on the 21st, I was in a coma for three weeks and then, you know, I woke up in that bad you know state for right. you know a week or two. And then I was out of Bethesda March 21st. So like once I got my mind straight, focused on the right direction, they slowly started taking me off medications. I started getting out of like I getting the strength to get in a wheelchair to go around the ward. And then, you know, March 21st, I headed to Richmond, Virginia at the VA and started doing physical therapy, you know, getting out of the hospital room. And, um, you know, by June 29th, I, I stood up on my prosthetics for the first time in San Antonio. 
right, I want to I want to talk about that that pro, that process. So it, it begins with having you know you're you understanding that you're still part of this team, and Marcus is a huge part of that, right? And down already down that road. Um, so that whole team thing that happened in Bethesda that used to happen in Walter Reed where guys would come in in their wheelchairs or guys would come in on crutches or, or, or somehow or other get to your room, right? How huge was that to all of this? It, it, man, it, 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 I mean, it's your motivation. Like, you know, and one of my, my physical therapists told me one day, he's like, Matt, you don't see this, but every day when you roll into the, the gym, the training facility – you go to the mat, you put your legs on, you stand up, and you walk out. And every day you have a smile on your face, you're joking, you're having a good time. And people who, you know, amputees who are new, who are trying to figure out their own life, they see this. They see a blind guy with no legs coming in here every day, working hard, standing up, walking out. They think to themselves, like, if this guy can do it, then I can do it. You know, it gives them hope. And I think that's all it is. It's just, you know, like going into the room and telling somebody, you know, that – Yes, you're. You're. It's going to be a long journey, but there's a way out of this journey. And for me, I had the opportunity to choose between Walter Reed or Bamsey Brookgarden Medical Center, and I chose Brookgarden Medical Center. And I think for me, that was the best um, therapy ever to walk into rehab and see a guy who's burned 50, 60, 70 percent of his body, laughing and joking and having a good time. You know, it just yeah. It, hold hold it on, tell so tell everybody. So, Brook Army Medical Center is in San Antonio. Tell everybody. I mean, it's the burn center for the United States military. So, you had a choice where to do your physical training, either at Walter Reed or there, and you chose San Antonio. I did the Center for the Intrepid, which is there at Bamsey Brook Army Medical Center, and it's it was their new state of the art uh, rehab facility, and it opened January of '07. And you know, through that time, Walter Reed was having the paper problems, paper issues, and I didn't want to get thrown into that, so I chose to go to San Antonio, and so grateful I made that decision to go down there because, again, it, you realize that there's a lot more people that have it worse than you do, but but those people don't let their injuries define who they are. Those injuries never put a you know take a smile off their face, and and um it, it put me in a better sp- spot because I got to meet people who who I looked up to who helped me along this journey. That's amazing. You know, I mean, when you think about that, I mean, you go from laying in that bed, yelling at your dad and cussing people out that come into your room, right, to um, in a matter of months thinking, wow, these people have it worse than me, right? Um, so I need to get up off my ass. I need to get moving. I need to, you know, I mean, it's an amazing mental, you know, um, I hate the word journey. Because I I don't know why I just I don't like it's amazing <laughs> mental you know evolution and again at 20 years old right at 20 years old uh, dealing with this dealing with this stuff talk to me about people right relatively early on in this whole thing um, that made huge contributions to you the way you looked at this your mental outlook um, you know people who who, who when you tell your story, your story isn't complete without mentioning this guy, without mentioning this woman. I mean, who, mm. who were those people for you? For me, when, you know, you know, like Marcus earlier, but when Mark- I got to Richmond, Virginia, um, you know, there was three moments there that, and these moments, it just went on the whole time, but three people in particular 
you know, one was the doctor in charge of the polytrauma center, you know, every day that he would come in my hospital room and talk with me. And, you know, and I was still trying to figure it all out. Like I had good days and I had bad days. And, but he would sit down and talk with me. And every time he would talk with me, he'd close his eyes. He's like, you can't see me. So I can't see you. And that gave me the trust, like to really open up to him. Like he, he don't need to come in here. He's taking the time and effort of his day to come in here and talk with me every day. And, and while he's doing that, he is, he can't see me. He's blind as well. And, um, that really, like, it really made me like, look at it a little differently. Like, you know what? I, I could trust this guy. I could trust these people. He, you know, he's going to do what it takes to get me through this. And, you know, another moment was, uh, my speech therapist. She came in the first day when I got to Richmond, Virginia, and she was, uh, I didn't know why she was there. I'm like, I don't want to read a book about the brown fox jump when, you know, the red fox jump or the brown log, you know, right. for the next time. This is how I talk. Like, yeah, I had a trach in, I know, but like, I, I don't need you every day. And the next day she showed up with my blind rehab outpatient specialist. And I didn't know why she was in there, but they said that she wants to work with me. She wants to go over Braille with me. I'm like, okay. And, you know, for the next two months, like, we went over Braille, and we had good time. We laughed. We joked. And and right when I was getting ready to leave Richmond, Virginia, I found out that a week before I got there, she had a miscarriage. And it made me realize that, and you know what, I'm, I'm dealing with my own things. She's dealing with her own things. But together, we're, we're having a good time. It's not on our mind right now. And when I was in Chicago just a couple of years ago, one of the bus drivers said something that it took me back to 2007. And it says, whatever you do, you never know what somebody else is going through or somebody's dealing with. Always be kind, caring, compassionate. And it took me back to 2007 to her. Like, you know, it's like she was probably had all these thoughts in her head. You know, she probably want to go to work every day. She had a miscarriage. And you know what? For those that hour or two at each day, six days a week, like she just smiled and laughed and it wasn't on her mind. And, you know, it's like these things that you go through life. It's like just to be kind and caring, you know, and know that you never know what somebody else is going through. Well, you were pro- probably therapy for her seeing, you know, being able to um, watch you and bring joy into your life. Right. And help you. I'm sure um, certainly was part of, of her own rehabilitation of herself because that's uh and i know right i know then like you know and then when i first got there like i would always i'd have the poncho liner and i'd always put over my lap when i'd roll out in a wheelchair because i realized that poncho liner covered my amputations and and, and in my mind i thought nobody could see my amputations right like you know this blanket covered them it was my security blanket right. but then the more i got out of the hospital room the more i started taking that blanket off that security blanket and and i started getting more comfortable in my own skin like, I, like to me, I thought in my head, I'm like, I lost my legs for freedom. I lost my legs for this country. Like, this is who I am. Like, my legs aren't growing back. You know what? I'm going to be proud of this. And, you know, those all these stories in Richmond, Virginia, like I, I was sitting in a room with a fish tank, and I would just sit there and listen to the water. And that's when I realized that, you know what? I could do this. Like, this prosthetic, the vision loss, like, this is who I am. Like, God kept me alive for one reason. And that's to go out and share my story to live a life to the fullest, go beyond the bare minimum and not settle, you know, on the bare minimum, but to share and inspire, you know, at least one person a day. That's, you know, that's all it takes, just one person a day. And that's that's why God kept me alive. He knew what my story was. And, and, and it's my my new mission, my new patrol to go pursue that story and to live a life that he kept me alive to live. OK, that's pretty heady shit for a 20 year old. Okay, so how long, how long does it take you to get there? 
I think like what you mentioned earlier about it, it wasn't just that one person. It wasn't right. just that one moment. It was all of them together that, you know, going back to in Iraq when you got, you know, doc putting tourniquets on my legs, my squad leader calling in QRF, the doctors, the nurses, the therapists, like, you know, all these people. And then I'd, I'd be in Bethesda and I'd get gift, like, not get, um, you know, prayers and cards on the wall. I'm like, all these people are in my corner. They got my back. Like, they're going to be here when I need them. You know, I, I got to learn that like, I'm not fighting this alone. Like, I got all these great people in my corner that, that when I need something or I'm struggling that I can reach out to, you know, and, you know, I'm not going to go off and, and isolate myself and, you know, try to do it by myself. You know, I just got through reading a book and as team together, everyone achieves more. And right. I realized that I've done a lot in this, you know, from then till now, but none of it would have happened if it wasn't for those who I surrounded myself with, who was in my life at that time, you know, and I just, uh, and, and, and going back to, to having those, those warriors, those amputees, the, the burn guys in my life so positive you know that perspective it really puts you in a good spot so how many years does this take so so you're wounded in what month january of 07 january of 07 okay so at what point would you tell me on the calendar um that you have it now clear in your head you know this path that you're going to take how long is that um I think when I was actually – when I got out of that dark state in Bethesda, I started getting in my mind because I had the Marines come in there every day, and and I realized that I want to reenlist. I want to stay in the Marine Corps because I want to do their job. So I started putting these you know, priorities in my head on what I need to focus on from prosthetics to vision loss to blind school. So when I put in my packet – and in 06 is when the Marine Corps come out with the EPLD program right. where it gives the – Purple Heart recipients the right to reenlist. Right. They'll find yeah. a job, and so I knew I had that on my side, but I had to do my part and make sure that when my packet goes across the commandant's desk, that that I've given him everything to where he can't deny it. And, yeah. and so, how many months? You know, how many months later is that? Um, I, I reenlisted April seventh of two thousand ten. I put my packet in August of two thousand nine. And um, it was approved as the first blind WMT in the history of the Marine Corps to do that, to re-enlist. And they asked me where I wanted to go. And I wanted to go to Woodward Town, East Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And um, I got to serve two more years in the Marines doing what I wanted to do in 07. And, and, and this is when I also realized that, okay, maybe this is my path in life, like being the blind guy with no legs. Like maybe it wasn't deploying over and over again, serving 20 years in the Marines and Maybe this is the new path. This is why God kept me alive. And, you know, it also gave me the opportunity to, to call it quits on my own. You know, I wasn't forced out medically, which I thought would have put me in a bad state. I had a lot of friends that were kind of forced out. But I got a chance to, you know, go and, you know, basically be like, you know what? The title of a Marine is going to stick with me for the rest of my life. And, and maybe it's time for me to take the uniform off and focus on something else. And at that time, I was in the process of getting ready to get married. Yeah, let's talk about that. So how do you meet your wife? First weekend, I moved to North Carolina. And, you know, it's interesting because you talk about how how life works out and how life happens. And, 
you know, they gave me the opportunity to either go to North Carolina or stay in San Antonio. And I chose North Carolina because I thought it'd be, you know, a better opportunity. And, and, and looking back, like it, it wasn't what I expected. Like I, I wish I'd, you know, San Antonio was the hospital. I could have been around more guys, but you know, going to North Carolina, I got a chance to meet my wife that, that first weekend. And where'd you meet her? How'd um, you meet her? She, uh, she worked there for a nonprofit and, and, you know, my, my furniture and other stuff even got there to North Carolina yet. And, it was like, hey, do you want to go on a, a kayaking trip? Like, if, you know, out there on the, the waterways of North Carolina. I'm like, sure, you know. And and we just sat there next to each other, texting each other like little 12-year-olds because we, we couldn't tell anybody that we were, you know, friends, you know, talking or whatever. But it was just uh, – I felt it. And I always joke around until people would love at first sight. <laughs> but, um, right. I remember asking my uncle because he helped us get from San Antonio, North Carolina. I'm like, what does she look like? You know, and we – uh. The, the the night that Friday night before the kayaking event started on Saturday, we were on the one of these big old beach house boardwalk back porches and stuff, and when, you know they were playing music and her and I danced our first you know first song ever. So, so what'd your uncle tell you when when you asked like what she looked like? What'd he say? Oh, said so she looked good. <laughs> <laughs> the um, so when do you get married? Actually, we got married uh, a year and a half later on at Emerald Isle, kind of the same spot where we met. Um, exactly a year from the first time I met her, we went to North uh, Myrtle Beach, and I proposed to her then. And then she's a beach girl, so, so getting married on the beach is where we, we had our wedding at Emerald is Isle. She, is she from North Carolina? She's from Rhode Island. Ro- I whoa. I know. Well, and let me just tell you, you're, uh, you know, I've seen – pictures of your wife okay so you know your uh your uncle undersold she looks good that's not that's not an adequate description your wife's very very she's a beautiful woman and so um but interesting so you get married on the beach and so your life is you know in the space of going from 2007 to now you get married in 2000 what 2012. 2012. In the space of five years, your life is in in a completely and you're you're 25. Your life is in a completely different place. It is, you know, and like the the mindset, everything was just different, you know. And you know, during that time, I was getting ready to. Well, actually, I was in school at a community college there in North Carolina, and and that you know, once I realized that, like, my life has been from. Marine Corps straight into college. Like I never had time to like really sit back and think about it. And, you know, at that time, you know, it's interesting because people come in your lives like, like my wife did and the master sergeant that I served under both of them, you know, my master sergeant got me into college and he didn't let me just like, you know, do the whole, Oh, I'll, I'll sign up when I get out done with the Marines. He, he actually set the appointment himself to where I had to go and set my classes. And what's his name? You know, what's that? I'm sorry. Master Sergeant, what's his name? Oh, Master Sergeant Evans. Chris Evans. And uh, he he was very instrumental in getting me into college. And um, like when I talk to Marines today, I'm always telling them, like, if you don't have a – if you have a job where you're not in the field all the time, take advantage of, like, tuition assistance. Take advantage right. of the college that they – you know, the, what the military provides you there on base and with base education. And then, you know, my wife, you know, the reason why we moved back to Kentucky – because when I left here in 2002, I never planned on living back here. But she said your dream school has always been to go to University of Kentucky. And 
she's like, this is your opportunity. And we moved back here and I started taking classes and graduated from UK in 2017 with multiple degrees. Mr. Toad's wild ride, man, like going to Disneyland. What, so let's talk about the next phase of your life. So so you're in school, and um, you have become a, uh, a spokesman of sorts. Um, um, you, I mean, if you go to, if you go to, uh, Matt's website, MatthewBradford.com, is it Matthew-Bradford.com? Just so I don't screw it, it up. It is dash, Matthew-Bradford. Uh, all right. Um, dot com. Um, you see, uh, his hashtag, no legs, no vision, no problem. Um, you go through the picture gallery. There's some fairly impressive <laughs> pictures on that son of a bitch. Um, you really all over the world, um, you know, you're in, in the Oval Office, you're with President Bush. Um, so talk to me about, um, you, you've been to Brooke, right? You, you, you've been in the bowels of these, um, these physical therapy, um, uh, facilities where you've seen, you know, the, the damage that war does to human beings, that are still alive. Um, you you've gone to work for the Wounded War Battalion. You're, you're you're out of the Marine Corps. You're married. You're looking at the rest of your life. So, what do, what were your thoughts in terms of okay, what's next for Matthew Bradford, and and what do I want to do? Talk to me about that whole process. It, it, it was interesting because like you know I went from Marine Corps to school and then when I left when I graduated from University of Kentucky I went straight into the congressional office and it didn't really hit me until this pandemic kind of yeah I was still traveling every now and then but I'd get home and like I was I didn't have a schedule I didn't know what to do because of the, the shutdown and everything and it's when I kind of realized that like all right what what is my purpose what is my intent and you know I had to do a lot of like soul searching thinking you know and, and you know I, I realized that you know i could you know it doesn't matter like if i'm out traveling what i'm doing like i could still make a difference in someone's lives and it's that, that choice that we have every morning when we wake up it's like how are you going to live your life are you going to roll over and hit the alarm clock and go back to sleep or are you going to get up and make a difference and and bettering your life and bettering others around you and I always try to make a point if it's one two three people a day it's whatever it's, as long as if they walk up to me in a bad mood or, you know, down in the dumps, and if I can put a smile on their face, then they're walking away better off than they were when they walked up to me. And it's just, you know, getting out and, and being around people and just having those conversations, being respectful, kind, and, you know, just talking and letting them know that, you know, it's everything's going to be okay. Like it's, uh, you know, we walk these journeys together. You so know, I'll be right next to you. So how does that get into your head? No legs, no vision, no problem. We're, we're, so again, what you're talking about is the evolution of a, of a young man, 20 years old, right? Who has these, you know, life altering injuries that, that for some people take them down a very, very bad road that ends in suicide. Yet you, yet you are, uh, you know. Let me tell you, when you're around, when you're around Matt, I mean, all he does is like crack jokes, and he's a funny guy, and uh, he's fun to be around. Uh, he's, he, I, I will tell you this, uh, you know, I having just met him about a month ago. He's easy to be around, um, and makes you feel at home right away. Um, those are all conscious decisions on your part to do that. 
um, and be like that, um, especially with, I'm sure, the physical pain that you still go through. Um, how, how does that, how do you choose that? What, what's the major driver of that? Um, and, and are there experiences you have? Because one of the things that truth be told, if you're, if you're a purple heart guy in this country, if you're an amputee, you know, there's a whole lot of doors that get thrown open to you. Right. I mean, I mean, there's people that will, I mean, if you want to inject yourself with Novocaine, right. And, and not face and not do the no legs, no vision, no problem stuff. There are veteran groups that I would tell you for most weekends out of the year, you can keep yourself busy. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. Right. And so, yeah. you choose you choose a much more, and again, I'm not bagging on anybody, but the, the truth is Matthew chooses a, a, a much more purpose-filled path in his life and sees that. Um, how do you get to that place mentally? You know, through, when I first got hurt, I always told people that I, although I have prosthetics and I can't see that I'm going to live as normal life as anyone with legs and vision. Like if it's going out surfing, skydiving, hunting, fishing, like I'm not going to let these injuries define who I am as a person. They're not going to be a weakness, but a strength. And, and I've lived that, you know, like you mentioned, I could have chose the road of, you know, drugs and alcohol and suicide, but I didn't want to be a statistic or a fat. And yeah, like I wanted to live the other life, go down that other path and, you know, simply live my life to the fullest. Like there's another hashtag I do is just walk. And this is when I was learning how to walk. And my, I was tripping over my own feet, and I was getting frustrated. I was bouncing off the walls, and and I, I didn't want to fall. And my process, or my physical therapist stopped me and said, "Matt, whatever you do, just put one foot forward and walk." You know, and that's just just enjoying every step because I almost lost my life on one wrong step. And you could think about that step. You know, each step forward is like the next day. Like we're not guaranteed tomorrow or next week. Like, so I'm going to take advantage and live every opportunity I can today. And take you know these seconds that we're given right now because again tomorrow might not come, and I just I, I simply just live in the moment you know and so so but that's that's partly just you as a human being the way your parents raised you right it's partly the influence um, of 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 the people around you that you get there so tell me about tell me about um, first of all again the website is. Matthew dash Bradford B R A D F O R D dot com, and you can go check out. Uh, you can see uh, a bunch of pictures. Nice beard, by the way. The um, when you stop shaving, what's that about, man? I uh, um, I did. I went to the Mount Rainier a couple of years ago, and um, I was going to shave before I flew back because my wife she doesn't like it when it when i'd like rub up against her right because it's prickly right and she's like no let's just keep it let me see it and then by friday night we were at walmart buying some razors and that was uh 2018 and i think i've only been skin shaved probably less than 10 times and it was when i'd put my uniform on so it's um wow the um so talk to us about what you do now so right now, just I, I do work with Troops First Foundation. Um, we I'm one of their, I guess, veteran liaisons, especially through the Marine Corps, because we go around to Operation Warrior Call, which is to raise awareness on on, on military suicide and resiliency, and um, speaking at town halls to the soldiers and the Marines. And we're actually doing one next week in Cherry Point, and it's uh it's more that that make a call, take a call, be honest. Like 
you're checking on your battle buddies and make sure that they're okay because nobody knows your battle buddies more than those who are serving alongside them. And, um, you know, the, the numbers, I thought it was 600,000 deaths through this pandemic is sad, but the numbers that a lot of times they fail to mention is the suicide rate, you know, and, and it's just you know, steadily going up, unfortunately. And, you know, although we can't change that number overnight and wake up tomorrow and it'd be zero, but, you know, if we can control, we could control and, you know, our own circle by looking out and keeping in touch with our friends to make sure they're okay. And then that's what we need to do. Well, I mean, you, you know, from, from, you know, sitting through post-traumatic winning to me, that's the, that's the path. Because if you look at, you know, that Brown university study that just comes out, we've had 7,057 killed in, in, mostly in Iraq and Afghanistan in combat and combat operation support we've had over 30,000 suicides, right? What the fuck? So there's a path that, that we normally treat this with, which is you, we've outsourced the problem, go and, and you're going to get meds and then you're going to come to therapy, you know, once, mm-hmm. twice, three times a month. It doesn't fucking work. And I can tell you no. with all the data movements that have happened in the second Marine division, when I worked with them, second Marine air wing, where you're going to go with, in Cherry Point, Right. Listen to this. One of the worst places for suicide in the Marine Corps has not had a suicide still to this day this year has not. Right. And and the difference is them understanding the truth and just what you said. Take a call, make a call, be a friend. Right. That's the, that's what we need, because that's the daily presence in our life. Two, two times a month to go talk about your shit. You need to talk about your shit all the time. You need people there all the time. And, and, and man, and, you know, I, I know you're on the right path because I know I'm the right path. I see it statistically all the fucking time. And, and, and you were, I mean, it's interesting how different people arrive at the same spot. And, you know, I had some interesting conversations in Montana with Matt. It was very cool. And, uh, but no, um, it's, it's, that is spot on, man, because that's the presence that we need in our life on a daily basis people that we could talk to. And then the next thing is, I don't know how if, if people that um, go through traumatic events understand, especially military people, understand how powerful it is when you look at a rape victim, when you look at a child abuse victim, and say, look, there's no difference between you and me. Delivery yeah. mechanism is different. That's it. But the way this shit impacts us, we're the same, man. So exactly. I want you to come be with me. If you, I mean, I, if you could see the look on their face when you say that to them and how powerful it is and the magic that we can provide in the lives of others if you walk down the path that Matt's walking down, I mean, it is, it is, it is tra- that's how you transform your own life. And you're, you're a great ambassador and example of that, Matthew. I mean, it's just awesome to see the work that you've done. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that's the, you know, you talking about the no legs, no vision, no problem, you know, yeah, the legs and the vision is my, my thing, but the no problem is the most important part because, you know, you could put anything in the legs and the vision part, you know, we all deal with our own struggles, you know, rape victims, uh, you know, struggling to, you know, suicide, traumatic brain, whatever it is, like we all have our bad days, but if we come together and we just sit down and have those people that we could talk to, those people that we can pick our phone up and know that on the other end, if it's going to be 2 a.m. or whatever time of the day they're going to answer their phone and you know through these warrior call like you know it you know these guys and girls are more likely to talk to us than they are their own command because they feel like their command 
is going to, you know, kick them out. And, you know, by providing them the resources, but I think the most important resources is, you know, creating those connections with them, those relationships to where like, they'll call me. Like I, I, I was in Germany last January and many of the soldiers over there, like they still call me today, right. you know, and it's important because although we're not over there speaking at town halls, they're over there leaving their own unit and checking on their own friends and brothers and sisters. And, you know, that's, that's all we just need to make sure that it, you know, and, and we've had, in, in these town halls from two star generals down to privates, you know, and it's, that's the most important part. It's cause it's, it's all, it's everybody. It's not just your NCOs or your staffing NCOs. It's everybody. And I know last year I had a friend who was a retired corpsman with four kids and then the Sergeant major, both of them, you know, took their lives. So it, it doesn't rank, doesn't, you know, thing, or if you're retired or if you're a father, it's, it's everybody. Right. And, and I would tell you in, in the work I've done that, you know, it's anybody who's been impacted by trauma, right? Um, and that is, I think it's really powerful so that I think that if you've served in the military, you have a skill that wherever you go, if you're not afraid to say, hey, could I talk to you? <laughs> you know there's nothing wrong with you, right? That everything you feel, and I get that when I go and, and in fact, I just did a seminar online last night with civilians and and we got to the first command, you know, the first six commandments of, of post-traumatic winning. And the first one is, right, you're never going to get over it. And the impact of that statement that there's nothing wrong with you, this stuff is never going to go away. All right. And understand that, that when you struggle with it, you're a human being and it's OK to hear the saying to see their smiles and to hear them say like, it felt like a huge burden was lifted off my shoulders to hear you say those words that there's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And, and and we know, Matt, I mean, it's just the truth, right? And that's why this this camaraderie, this fraternity and sorority that we're all, that, that those of us have gone through traumatic events that have been a part of is so important because once somebody knows they're not alone, as you said, that there is a path for them to walk. And I know that path. You know, it's, it's, it's life changing. It's absolutely life changing. And, you know, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. The, um, so, so what's next for you? All right. So you've been, Oh, so we're, uh, yeah, we're headed to Cherry Point next week to do the warrior call down there. And then got a couple of events actually headed in August to, uh, not in August in September to do a walleye fishing excursion up in Lake Erie. So, you know, got a couple of speaking engagements uh, in October and November. Headed out to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and then Kansas City. So it's uh, things are starting to pick up and get back to normal. Getting out and speaking more. Um, you know, I, I still I like to get out. I do bike rides. Got a century, hoping to do a century on nine eleven. Um, so, so a sen- just, century uh, is a hundred mile ride, right? Hundred miles, yeah. <laughs> right. I did one. Did one. Actually, it was the, the two weeks before I went out to Montana and I saw you. I did a century ride here in Kentucky. Um, but it's just, you know, I just, I love getting out and, you that's know, a, that's just, a long way, man. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. hundred miles along. That's a long, that's a long <laughs> bike ride. I, I want to ask you about, you know, the bar X thing and you were very instrumental in putting that together. Talk to me about, about, um, talk to me about that. Um, you know, from, like you mentioned earlier, there's like so many veteran programs, organizations out there and, but none of them, you know, all except now the bar X project, they don't 
they always bring a bunch of wounded dudes together. Right. Like guys that it takes you a couple of days to open up to and by the third day you're headed home. Right. But you know, I've always wanted since day one to get back with my friends. And I was talking with one of the bar X guys and like, there's a lot of these guys I haven't seen since my injuries. And, and he was like, Oh, well, this is actually one of our programs. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a wounded guy, if you're a purple heart, whatever. It's like, we bring those you serve with together. And, um, so we tried to do it last year, but the pandemic stopped it. And then in January, they reached back out and I did everything, you know, from reaching out to everybody in my, my platoon first and my company. And then, um, and it was a, a really good group of guys, you know, and it was so great to catch up and see them again. And, and I was sitting there talking to my, my doc at the airport. He said, you know, the one amazing thing about this trip is we were out there four days. We'd sit out by the campfire until two in the morning. But no story was shared more than once. And it's like, I know, you know, and it was like, I, I usually pretty excited to come back home after a trip just to, to be home. But um, yeah, it was hard to leave because un- unfortunately, like, we don't know when we're going to see each other again. And that's the, uh, I guess that's the one bad thing about being an East Coast Marine station in the West Coast. You got friends all over, but. Right, right. Um, no, you can feel, I mean, and, and you know, the Barks Project, I mean, they have, they've broken the code on. On, on, I think on this thing in terms of you bring people together that have served together and the, the craziness starts at the airport. As soon as they see it, it starts on the flights inbound that, that, the, that they're on together. And, and, uh, and you, and I could tell you from being an outsider that, that goes to meet these guys, you can feel it when you walk up. You, I mean, between the laughter and, and the, and the serious conversations that you listen to, you can see that they pick up where they left off. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing for those of us that love, you know, team sports that, that, you know, that served, I think on the greatest team on the planet and that's Marine Corps. It is you, you, it is, it is even me who's not a part of the unit. It's a comfortable, you know, people giving each other shit, the screaming and yelling, the laughing, (laughs) right. Is all, you know, the familiar kind of drumbeat of, of my life. And it's very easy to kind of, you know, flop down in a chair and begin to listen. And then at some point, you know, join the conversation and, and very cool event. Very, very. And and again, I non-Marine type words, but the intimacy that you feel, right? Exactly. The intimacy that you feel. uh, I feel like, you know, that through all of this and, you know, like I've been given a platform and the one thing that I've wanted to do with this platform is make sure that when I speak, Whatever I do, like I make sure that those guys from Echo Company, Second Platoon, like they those stories are told, you know. And I want to make sure that with this platform that I've also been given that if my friends, like they're like especially about Second Platoon and the goes guys in Echo Company, they're my first priority. Like I want to make sure that they're taken care of as well. And you know, if it's like getting them in touch with somebody that I know or helping them out through the VA or whatever it is, it's like I want to be there for them because they were there for me. And it's just that serving and giving back. And, um, you know, on that trip, you know, is, uh, you know, the Marcus was there who spoke to me in the hospital, Kevin Ayala, who was who him and I went through MEPS together even before sitting on those yellow footprints, carried me off the battlefield, you know, and a doc who tourniqueted me up and got me kept me alive and then had a chance to uh, fish with Dale Lemke, who his son served with us in Iraq and lost his life in Afghanistan a couple of years later. You know, so it's a, you know, like, like Dale said, he's like, Oh, I'm not a veteran or I'm not a Marine. I'm like, no, you're part of this family. 
You yeah, know, you know what? It, it, that's so important because, you know, I'll I interviewed this son, and he's just on earlier this week, uh, and kind of a follow up thing. The son of a, a marine who was killed at Quezon. He was a month old when his dad was killed, and and the first time I interviewed him, and he was talk. He kept talking about well the Marines, and then and they and blah blah they and and I said, hey, stop, motherfucker. Don't you understand that you belong to us? What is this they bullshit you keep saying? And he told me later, he said, I got the biggest smile on my face. I said, your part, we own you. He is us. You is us. Do you get that now? And he said, Mac, he said, I don't know that I really got it until you started cussing at me and and, and telling me. But that is, right? And it's really, it's so important that he gets embraced and brought into this beautiful, beautiful tribe that we're a part of and gets to spend the, that time with you guys in that really, you know, beautiful setting, you know. I tell you um, what, we were floating down the river and I told my wife and I told a couple of the guys that, and it, I felt like a dad, you know, he was my son watching him fly fish, you know, he was excited when he caught something and he was pissed off when one broke the line and I was just <laughs> sitting there just I was taking it all in. Like uh, he, he walked up to me probably cause we were the probably two that familiar with each other. And he was like, Matt, do you want to fish with me? And we'd go out there and we'd talk about his son and we would talk about life, you know? And it was just, and you could tell the difference from when he first got there to when he left there. And, um, and he, he made, he, he mentioned it a few times and it's like, Nope, your family, you know? And, and it was just, uh, like I, I, I was very excited. He, he came on the trip. Well, you know, first of all, God bless you for doing that because that is different. As you said, I, in fact, I have friends that told me, you know, the way I even got sensitized to that was I have a friend uh, who, who I served with who said who went on one of those trips and he said, you know, you need you need to get involved in it because your program is 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 what these things need because you leave something like that and you go home to your normal life and it's almost like you go through a little bit of weak depression. He said, and I'm talking about being with strangers. And so when I told him about the Bar X thing, it was like, they bring guys who've served together together. He was like, whoa, how awesome would that be? And I said, yeah. And then in the midst of that, you know, I'll do, <laughs> I'll do post-traumatic winning. And, and, and then they'll argue about it, you know, afterwards. And, and we'll talk about it. And, you know, but, um, and, and so that's how I got, I, that's how I got sensitized to it. Is that these veteran weekends were, were, as you said a little bit ago, you, there's strangers that get brought together. It takes you a couple of days to feel comfortable, and then you know a day later you're leaving. And yep. but this experience is different, and uh, hopefully it won't be the last thing. You know that that uh, it'll just be the first thing that you guys are doing together and bringing more guys into it because I'm sure there's guys who wanted to come, you know, but either canceled at the last minute or made an excuse why they couldn't come, but really wanted to. And uh, exactly. And 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 your job is, as you know, it is to is to keep impacting the lives of of guys in you know Echo Company two three and and uh, and keep expanding the circle and, and touching lives and helping them live great lives. So, hey Matthew, I hope you don't mind if uh, if I keep bugging you and bring you back on the program and continue th- this kind of conversation because they're conversations that, that people need to hear and. Uh, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed today's conversation and stuff. And it's good to hear your voice too. Um, um, anything that I could do to help help you out as well, just just let me know. 
Well, let me tell you, I, I, I'm going to take you up on that because uh, post-traumatic winning is get, get, going to get ready to be a big deal. And, you know, when people like you, uh, with the kind of credibility you have and, and, and your outlook, um, I think that, that we as Marines, our culture's got a gift to give to anybody who's gone through traumatic events. And when we stand up and look at them and say, hey, look at us, there's nothing wrong with you. And there's no difference between us and you. And if we can walk, if our fucked up asses can walk down this path, right? <laughs> right? If we could stumble fuck down this path, you all can do it too. And, yep. to, and to see the smile. So I think we have a gift to give the country, man. And and, and I'm committed to doing that. And I'm committed to, to bringing guys like you along with me because I know you're on the same mission that I am. So, uh, so thank you so much for coming on today. And I will bug you to come back on. And I will bug you and start dragging you around the country with me. Hey, that's how it works with me. Please do. <laughs> All right. So you're headed, where are you headed today? To go work out? Uh, my gym. It's uh, I do personal training about three times a week. And, um, he squeezed me in today. So I'm going to go get a good workout in and then come home and probably get on the, the bike, get some cardio in. So Yeah, well, if you got that 100-mile ride coming up, your ass better get on that thing. I know. Like, I got to get my butt conditioned. It's not <laughs> that's, that's, right? That's the hardest part is getting your ass conditioned to that thing because you get off that thing, your ass is just screaming. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, first of all, thank you so much uh, for doing this. It was uh, first of all, it was a pleasure and an honor to be with you and and your guys up there. And I had a great, uh, I, had a, I, had a, I had a great plane ride uh, back to Denver uh, with a good friend of yours. And so, uh, so, and and actually, I'm going to hook my friend up with my 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 younger son who was in three five. I'm, oh. I'm going to hook him up with him because he's a He's a he's a great role model in that business. My son just got in that great. business. I said, "Hey, I want you to meet somebody." Daniel Renshaw. Yeah, I could. Uh, I'm sure he probably got his information. Yeah. But if you need anything, just let me know. No, he's a great. He's a, another Purple Heart guy. Uh, yep. But uh, but no, he's just a great dude and a self-made dude and and really impressive guy. So somebody I want my son to meet. So anyway, I appreciate uh, I appreciate being able to come up there and meet you all that weekend and uh, and want to wish you all the best uh, of luck in the future and uh, and I'll have you back on pretty soon and uh, thank you for doing today. Thank you so much and look forward to talking to you soon. All right. How about that? That is Matthew Bradford. Marine, um, and you could tell just a great guy. I mean, to have that happen at 20 years of age and, and to to live the life that he's living and to touch the lives that he touches, it's just a, an incredible story, and he's a great role model for all of us, no matter what you've been through. The, um, yeah, I mean, truly a post-traumatic winner, right? A post-traumatic winner. More of Auburn Radio coming up next, right here on your home for it. The All Warrior Radio Network.